And I want to express my appreciation for our praise team. They have uh, done a phenomenal job this morning. They got a text message like I did this morning that uh, Jesse was uh, vomiting and so was uh, Ada. And, and so they had to uh, pick up the mantle and carry on. And some of the, uh, the songs that they were going to sing this morning, uh, they were, I think it's fair to say, they were really going to lean on Jesse to carry it. And uh, he was more familiar with them. So they had to not only take up the mantle, but they had to call some audibles and make some changes. And uh, I just appreciate their willingness to do that. I think the Lord has blessed our church with some great servants on our praise team. So uh, Nicole, Clint, Taylor, Vanessa, thank you all. So much for leading us in song this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And today is around the country being remembered as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And traditionally it is a Sunday where churches stand up, proclaim, affirm, express our our solid belief in the value, the inherent value and worth of every human being. That that value is not dependent on location, on social status, on race, on poverty or lack of poverty, but every single human being is created in the image of God And being created in the image of God has worth, has value. It is a day that we set aside to remember and proclaim to a world that is increasingly antagonistic to such a notion. A couple years ago, more than a couple, uh, there was a movie that came out. And I'm not endorsing the movie. I just know this is a, you've always got to be careful when the preacher references a movie because sometimes it's, you know, I can go watch that movie and I don't have to feel bad about it. That's not what I'm saying. But I do remember when the first Matrix movie came out. And at the very beginning, the Keanu Reeves character is essentially a human battery. And the whole premise of the movie is that the machines had taken over and they viewed humanity as a resource to be expended and then disposed of. And how eerily similar that sounds to a lot of what we hear in our culture today. That humanity, this body, this who we are as as creatures matters very little. And it's easily expendable. But this morning, we want to look at Genesis 2. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8 and look at what the scriptures have to say about God's image, God creating mankind, and why this creature called man has a uniqueness and a value. And what I want you to see this morning, if if we want to summarize it very, very simply, the main idea that I want us to see this morning is to affirm the sanctity of human life means that we stand for physical life and we share the hope of eternal life. Let me say that again. To affirm the sanctity of human life means we stand for physical life 
and we share the hope of eternal life. And just by the way, David, that's 21 words. All right. We had our pastor's conference, and we were teaching them how to create a main idea for their sermon. And we were talking about numbers, and David just looked at me, and he said, how many words? And I said, I aim for 21 words and my main idea. And I know that's a weird number. It comes out of nowhere, but that's just what works. So I'm just saying, FYI, it's 21 words. If I can count correctly, it's 21 words. But look at Genesis chapter 2. And we want to talk about how we should stand for physical life because of the uniqueness and the value of human beings. In verses 7 and 8 of Genesis chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. So we want to walk through these two verses, and I I want to share with you some truths. And it may sound repetitive to say this, but I want to share some theological truths. Because the fact of the matter is, is we should not believe in the sanctity of human life because it's a political point. We shouldn't believe in the sanctity of human life just to be the opposite of the party we disagree with. We hold to the sanctity of human life because God's word teaches it. And so there are theological reasons why we uphold the sanctity of every life. So I want to give you this morning seven theological truths. Seven theological truths that help support this main idea that that man, we should stand for life and we should share eternal life. So truth number one is that man's creation was an intimate act of God. Man's creation, when I say man, I mean mankind, but here man in the text, man's creation was an intimate act of God. Look at what it says in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man. So we say it's an intimate act because it says the Lord. And if your Bible has all caps, that's the name Yahweh. Before We're being told before Exodus 3, before we're told that his name is I am, that he is Yahweh here, Moses is telling us that that God that eventually is revealed as Yahweh, he is the one who formed man. It's not some other God. It's not somebody else. There's no question about who's at work. And notice, it's Yahweh who's who's taking the initiative he forms he acts we have divine action divine initiative of the one true covenant making covenant keeping god creator of the universe and what is he doing it says he formed now in genesis 1 it says let us create man in our own image And genesis 1 is is all about god speaking and things coming to existence but here in genesis 2 It zooms in on the creation of man, and we're told that God formed. That word means to shape, to form, to fashion. It is a a hands-on process. It is something that's used of, this word is used of fashioning weapons. Think about how your hands would be involved. It's used of making idols. Your hands are involved. It's used of making clay pots. And what is, what is making clay pots and pottery, if you've, if you've ever seen it? It's all the hands. They're shaping, they're molding. 
And then it's, it's even repeated in verse 8. At the end, he placed the man he had formed. So not only does God shape him with his hands, he, he fashions him, he creates him, and he's intimately involved. But then he takes that man in his loving hands and places him, not sends him, but places him in the garden. What I love, uh, if you think about this, the, the, uh, the Old Testament at one point in history was translated into Greek. And, and the Greek word that's used in the translation of this verse, the verb form is the verb plasso. Plasso. And that's where we eventually get the word plastic. When you have a plastic, it's moldable. It's, it's heated up and it's shaped. And, and that's what we're talking about here, this, this forming and shaping, this, this pressing and molding that God does of man. And this word is used all throughout the Old Testament. You know, Jeremiah 1.5. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's that language again, and it's used of an infant in the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's used in Zechariah 12.1, where it says, The Lord formed the spirit of man within him. It's used in Job 10, 8 and 9, where Job says, Your hands shaped me and formed me. Will you now turn from me? Please remember that you formed me like clay. Lord, will you now return me to dust? So you get the picture. The Lord, the one true God, formed man. It is an intimate act of God, unlike any other creature. It's sort of like, have you ever, when was the last time you played with Play-Doh? If you have younger kids, maybe it hasn't been that long. Or if you have grandkids, maybe it hasn't been that long. But, but when you dump it out of the container, it doesn't just come out in the shape of a human being or whatever it is you want to build. It does it? Or maybe you're like me and, and really when it comes out and then you shape it, it still kind of looks like, I don't even know what that is. Somebody says it's a cow, and you say it's supposed to be a giraffe. But that same picture of God forming us and shaping us, it is an intimate act of God. So that's the first truth I want you to see. But, but there's also a second truth with, with this, the second theological truth, that, that man's creation was a sovereign act of God. Another way to say it is it was a God act of God. Nobody was consulted when God decided to confer this special status on this creation. God did not take a poll. He did not consult the rest of creation. Should I, should I be involved in making this? Should I, should I take a hands-on approach? No, He just did. And that says something about man and how we're different than the animals. We are similar in that we are creatures, but we're different. So it is an intimate act of God, and it is a sovereign act of God. That means we have a, a different value. You don't treat your china the same way you do paper plates, do you? I hope you don't. You, you don't treat your... Your, your belongings, your car, or whatever it is that, that you're trying to maintain the value of your house, you don't treat it the same way as you might treat a, a, a paper or a tent. And the same is true, that there's a value, and, and we have to reckon with that value and uphold that value. 
So it's an intimate act of God. It's a sovereign act of God. But then look at what it says. This, this creation, it is formed by God. But what is it formed out of? It says he formed the man out of the dust from the ground. Yes, we are a special creation, but we are a creation. And we're, God formed us out of the dust of the ground. There's a word play here. When God created man, the word man is Adam. And it says that he made him from the dust of the ground, Adama. We're, we're connected linguistically. We're connected theologically. And so while we have a special status, it does not mean that we are somehow greater than God. That we are somehow anything other than creatures of the dust. You notice God doesn't make man from the stars. He doesn't make them from planets. He doesn't make them from black holes or galaxies. He makes them from the dust of the earth. Why? Because we were made for the earth. We're made out of the earth because we're made for the earth. Which really points us to a third theological truth. Yes, it was an intimate act and a sovereign act of God. But man is a lowly creation. That's the third theological truth. Man is a lowly creation. Now, when I say lowly, what I'm trying to get you to understand is that we are, since we're made out of the dust of the ground, we are special. We do have value. But we also need to put that value in the proper perspective. Let us not think that the image of God in every human being means that we are entitled to some sense of pride or arrogance or wicked lordship over creation. We are creatures of the dust. Why is that important to remember? Well, it's important to remember when we sin. What makes sin so offensive against the holy God? It's because this creature of the dust would dare defy the holy and righteous God who made him. And so we are a lowly creature. We need to be honest about that. But that's not where the story ends. We are a lowly creation. There is a humility that ought to accompany the image of God, that we recognize our place as creatures, that we are not God. But then notice what it says after that. He formed him out of the ground and then breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. It says he breathed, he blew. Think of this, God's exhale was man's first inhale. God breathed his breath of life. He spirited us. And it's passive. We did not breathe it in. God breathed it into us. This, this breath of life. What does that mean? It's a breath that, that gives life. That gives spiritual life. That gives physical life. Think about John 20. This is why John 20 verses 21 and 22 are so interesting. Jesus says to them after the resurrection, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And after this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. God breathed on man. And it became a living being, it says. He breathed life into his nostrils and he became a living being. So yes, man is a lowly creation. But the fourth truth I want you to see, the fourth theological truth, is that man is a special creation of God. It is a special creation of God. 
how can we say that? Well, it, it is true when you read Genesis 1 that on the sixth day, it says God gives food to creatures that have the breath of life. So other creatures have the breath of life. That's not what makes us special. What makes us special is that with man, that breath comes directly from God. He, I mean, okay, is, would anybody be weirded out if I just came up to your nose and I went, <laughs> yes, why would it be weird? Because I think if I could put a finger on it, you would say, Jason, we're not that close. <laughs> not quite, we're not there. Maybe we'll get there, brother. I'll make sure to have a breath mint just in case. But, but there, is a, there is a special relationship that we are a special creation of God. And this, this breath coming directly from God signals that the man of dust is different. He is to live in a special way. He has a unique relationship. And so man is a special creation of God. And it says that he became a living being. And so the fifth theological truth is that man is a living creature. Man is a living creature. And I would say tied to that, man is a crowning creature. Man is a living creature. When God breathed the breath into life of him and he became a living being, the, the creation was complete and now this man was a living creature. And as a living creature, he was the crowning creature. You read Genesis 1 and it all culminates. All of it points and is headed to God made this man, this image of his to work, to keep to worship, to rule, to subdue creation. And so this is a crowning creature. Man is God's crowning accomplishment in creation. So, what have we said? It's an intimate act of God. It is a sovereign act of God. Man is a lowly creation, but it is also a special creation. And it's special because it is a man is a living creature and a crowned, crowning creature. And we see this in Genesis 2. And so as we think about some applications that we might make of this text as it concerns the sanctity of human life, let's affirm some things. Number one, that God determines the value of a person. God determines the value of a person. I have a confession to make about the sanctity of human life Sunday. Please hear me. My, what, I, what I want to say, I, I hope you'll hear what I'm saying, that you won't hear what I'm not saying. That makes sense. I find that we refer to the sanctity of human life Sunday, we are primarily talking about the sanctity of infant life in the womb, it is a Sunday that is often where, and in some senses rightfully so, the focus is on abortion. But can I ask you a, a very honest question? What makes abortion so horrific? Not, not the process. What makes it wrong? Is it because they're infants? Is it because they might still be in the womb? 
If that, the answer to those two questions is yes, well, then what happens when they're not infants and they're not in the womb? Is it okay then? Are we okay with maybe saying as a culture and as a church, once you reach the, the age of, I don't know, 80, and we can't get as much out of you as a society and as a church that we just put you out to the pasture? You see, it's not, the sanctity of human life is not about age. It is not about location. The sanctity of human life is a part and an affirmation of the nature as human beings. That a child in America matters just as much as a child in Uganda. That someone who may not be as able-bodied is not less the image of God than someone who is fully able-bodied. God determines the value of a person because he has crowned each human being and created them in the image of God. And how does this work out in our culture? Well, a lot of times it's productivity. Your value is based on how productive you are. Can you contribute to the society? Can you pay your taxes? Are you, do you contribute more than you drain from the economy or, or from the national treasure or whatever it is? But that does not determine the value of a person. It is not their wealth. There is no inherent value difference between Jeff Bezos and the nameless faces that are homeless on the streets in many of our cities. There is zero qualitative difference because they're both human beings created in the image of God. The image of God is not a status that can be gained or lost. You, you cannot will yourself out of being created in the image of God. You cannot send yourself out of being created in the image of God. As long as you are a human being, you have value. And it is a value that God has determined. We're talking about something that is a part of humanity by nature. It is inalienable. It's unchangeable. Is man lowly? Yes. Is man worthless? No. Not by any means. So God determines the value of a person. And this is something that we will increasingly need to affirm and explain to people in our culture. They won't believe it. Because think of how lost people you know. Every, uh, almost every lost person you will come in contact. Their view of the value of humanity is on a transactional scale. What can I get from this person? Or what has this person given me? But not even that determines the value of a person. There are people who can do absolutely nothing for you. And they matter just as much to God as you do to God. So God determines the value of a person. If we're going to talk about standing up for life, we need to stand up for all lives. For all of life. Another application, we need to recognize that human life is sacred and has value. And here, I think this is where Christianity and atheism, secularism, whatever you want to call it, could not be more at odds. And do you remember during COVID, at the height of COVID, and, and we hear it in other, other places as well, that there were things that we had to do 
that we were supposed to do to love our neighbor, to protect life, that we are, we were, there were actions that we were supposed to take, even if it was to save one life. And we heard that from people who weren't Christians. We heard that from atheists, that, that we should do things to protect life. We hear about we have to do something about climate change. Now, I'm not getting it. I'm not saying I believe in it. I'm not saying I don't believe in it. And don't ask me, to be honest. <laughs> but the point is, is a lot of time that conversation is like millions will die if we don't do something. And you go and you ask the atheist, you ask a secular person, why? We must do this. this why? Where do you get that human life has value? Well, because I wouldn't want it to happen to me. Okay. I I can get that. Golden rule, right? Do unto others what they would have them do to you. You wouldn't want somebody to know you're in danger and not do anything. I get it. But why? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, who cares? You will be around for 70 years and then... However long the universe continues before you believe it collapses in on itself or expands into dissolution, you will be a, a, nobody will remember you. Your name will be forgotten. So who cares? Why? Why not just pillage and rob and steal and, and, and get yourself what you want, what you need? You ask them, when somebody's talking about this, just ask them why. Just keep asking why. We should do this. Why? Well, because we want to save lives. Why? Well, because we don't want anybody to to die unnecessarily. Why? Isn't that not, I don't know, survival of the fittest? Isn't that not just evolution playing itself out? Those who are not able to live perish and we move on. Who cares? So... Contrast that with Christianity. You see, one of the biggest frustrations with with a lot of the rhetoric from secular people is that they're stealing our thoughts, but they don't want to say that they're getting it from us. Human life value is, it matters because God bestows that value. We act because people are created in the image of God. So all human life has value. A third application we can make is we must consistently uphold life for all life, for all our lives. Let me say that again. We must consistently uphold life for all life, for all our lives. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, well I don't even want to apologize because I don't think I'm wrong on this, but I once preached on a sanctity of human life Sunday, and I mentioned that that the issue of the sanctity of human life, when it comes to uh, when it comes to abortion, that is what receives a lot of the attention. And I get it. Please hear me. I understand. But the sanctity of human life, the doctrine of the image of God, has many, many more applications than just. Abortion. If we believe in the sanctity of a life, what does that say about adoption? What does that say about fostering? 
What does that say about working in our community with those who have needs? What does that mean for, listen, the sanctity of human life, mom and dad? Those little human beings running around your house? Treat them as image bearers who have value. You see, the image of God applies to a lot more than we often think. And we have, to, we have to be consistent. My fear on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is that many people attend churches, the pastor hammers from the pulpit about abortion, everybody goes home, and if, if, if I'm being quite honest, we go home like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Thank you, God, that I am not like them. Yes, we must speak up for life. We must fight. We must stand against the evil that is abortion. We must seek to persuade and convince others. We must lobby. We must do everything within our power. But let us not sit back on our... Let's not sit back on our refusal or our... our resistance to that as if we've actually accomplished something. Are you with me? Just saying no to something, that is something, but, but, but what else could you do? I think about I, I, people in our church who, who volunteer in the schools to help children learn how to read. Is that not a sanctity of human life? being a blessing to another human being, we, we must consistently uphold life for all life, for, for infants in the womb and for the elderly. You, you realize in the country to the north of us, there is a movement of approving and medically sanctioned assisted euthanasia. And I'm using that word instead of using a different word. Where you can go and you can say, I just don't like my life right now. And I don't want to live it anymore. And an official will just say, we can help you with that. Or you struggle with a mental illness or you struggle with depression or there's a trauma that you're constantly dealing with and you just don't want to deal with it anymore. You can go to a place and they'll say, we can help you with that. That's not help. It's a life issue. And so we have to constantly uphold it, consistently uphold it for all of life and for all our lives. There's just one problem. None of us lives up to this standard. None of us lives up to the standard of holding every human life and seeing every human life the way we ought to. Jesus himself convicts us of this because in Matthew chapter 5, he says, he questions, Have you, if you're angry with your brother, you've heard it said, do not commit murder or you'll be liable to judgment. But if you're angry with your brother, you are liable to judgment. He says, if you've ever been angry, unjustly angry in your heart against someone, it's murder in the heart. He says, have you ever lusted after someone else? That's adultery. 
in the heart. And, and murder, adultery, are those not denigrations and devaluations of the image of God in a person? One of the most, I remember when I was in high school, my first job was at Smithfields in Zebulun. And I remember I would help tables, you know, they go around to the table and they, they ask you. And I remember some of the rudest people were on Sunday mornings. And they would come in in their suits and their ties. And with all due apologies to anybody named Karen... They were real Karens. And, and, and I, how, let's get it straight in our mind. If we're going to say that we're here this morning affirming the sanctity of human life, don't go to lunch and, and Karen out on somebody. Look at that, that person. And I'm speaking to myself here. Look at that person. I, I don't think I've ever cared out. But, whoa, whoa. She got one eye. Okay. Maybe not to their face. All right. Yeah, not to their face, I think. But, but listen, that's, that's the whole point. None of us lives up to this standard, right? None of us perfectly values all of life for all of our life. That's why. We, we can stand for life, but what we need to recognize is what they need and what we need is not, is, is not a law. What we need is the Lord. We need Jesus. So, so the fourth application is only Jesus Christ has ever lived this perfectly. So that the answer then to, to so much of what attacks the image of God is nothing within us. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What pro-abortion advocates need is Jesus. And what they need, we all need. Jesus is the one who upholds the value of a person by upholding the value of the image of God. Jesus came in the flesh. He became a man. He delivers and redeems Sinners, by taking on their sins and bearing them on the cross and suffering uh, the judgment that they deserved. And then he restores the image of God by conforming us into his image. Romans 8.29, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So in the end, when we're talking about the sanctity of human life, let's not fool ourselves into thinking, if we could just pass one more law, that would solve everything. Now, I'm all in favor of laws. I think we, we have laws that regulate behavior. That's the point of laws, right? But let's not think that that's the solution permanently to what our country needs, what our culture needs, what they need, what a, an advocate for abortion needs, what someone who's had an abortion needs, what the church needs, what the world needs is not a law. It needs a gospel. It needs good news. And so the seventh theological truth is this. The hope of every person is Jesus Christ. 
There's a saying that goes around in preacher circles that one of the tasks of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I'm fixing to afflict the comfortable. Our main idea this morning was that the sanctity of human life means we stand for physical life. We stand for the value of life. We uphold and defend the image of God in every single person. But we also need to share the hope of eternal life. Come talk to me afterwards if you would disagree with this. But I think it's highly hypocritical if we scream at the top of our lungs against abortion, against the sanctity of human life. But by and large, we refuse to share Jesus with anyone. You want to uphold the sanctity of human life? Be uncomfortable with the fact that there are image bearers who are on their way to hell and need to hear about Jesus. Be uncomfortable with the double standard maybe in your own life. Be uncomfortable with the fact that standing for life means standing for physical life and eternal life. And perhaps you're the opposite. You'll share Jesus with just about anybody, but you won't touch a hot-button topic like abortion or anything like that. Or maybe you think all we ought to do is just preach and save souls and then whatever situation they're in, we just leave them because their soul's good. They're going to go to heaven when they die. So whatever situation they're in, who cares? But it's a both and. So to affirm the sanctity of human life means we stand for physical life and we share the hope of eternal life. So if you're here this morning, where are you? Where do you find yourself? How would the Lord have you stand up for life and share eternal life? Why not start today? Why not? If you go to lunch somewhere, make, make some small effort to share eternal life with someone. Quote John 3.16. Pray for your waiter or your waitress, your server, and pray John 3.16 in front of them. Ask them, how can I pray for you? Ask them, do you know that Jesus loves you and died for you? And if you trust him, you can be saved. Start somewhere and share. But then as you stand for physical life, let's keep in mind that we are hopeless apart from Jesus. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe, maybe you think that if I just have the right political position or if I just do good deeds and I try to be a good person, a good husband, a good wife, I'm pretty sure God would accept me. But that's not how it works. There are probably plenty of people who did not believe in abortion in hell because they never trusted and Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. You see, where we start today 
is we come to Christ knowing we're sinners. We believe, we, we believe that He was the Son of God who was crucified in our place. That He took our punishment. And we believe that what He did and who He was was enough to save us. And if you do, God says you are forgiven. You're a new creation. And now you are beginning to be conformed into the image of the Son who Himself perfectly, consistently upholds the value of life. So let's not go the wrong way. Let's not try to, to fight this thing by going around Jesus. Let's understand that it's only in Jesus and through Jesus and with the hope of Jesus that any of this will change. So where do you start today? Ask the Spirit to show you, and He will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time in your word. Lord, we thank you that, God, in, in recent years, the efforts of many people to, to see the end of the legalization of abortion in our country on, on a federal level has come to an end. And Lord, now in many ways, the battle comes to the states. But Lord, help us to not exchange. Lord, it's, it's both and. We should seek to legislate, but we should also evangelize. God, if we're honest, I think a lot of times we rest on our laurels that we trust a little bit too much in the judicial system. And for the law to affect a change in the heart. Yes, Lord, we want to see it done away with. We, we, we don't want to see this, the, human, the sanctity of human life denigrated. We don't want to see life oppressed. We don't want to see human beings hurt and afflicted. And Lord, to, our, to the best of our abilities, we can, we can pass laws, but, but Lord, no law can change the heart. It's a both end. We need Jesus. Jesus, we need, we need the church to, to be the church. We need Christians to be Christians who will speak up for life and stand for life, but will also be just as quick to share the hope of eternal life with those who need it. Lord Jesus, wherever you find us, may we, may we repent for where we've fallen short. May we turn from, from our negligence and, and perhaps our, our ignorance. May we turn from our uh, pride May we turn from whatever it is that keeps us from doing what it is your word calls us to do. And as we come to a time of invitation, Lord, speak through the word that was preached. Speak into our hearts and show us the way to go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.